Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Back to the Future movie review series. Today we are reviewing Back to the Future Part 2. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. If I sound a little bit under the weather, it's because that I am. Unfortunately, my whole house came down with the flu. And thankfully, Alan and I are doing this through the magic of the internet, so there's no way I can spread my germs to him and cough all over him during the podcast. (laughs) Good thing you can't pass germs over the internet. Not yet, at least. Hopefully (laughs) never. So, Back to the Future Part 2. Audiences... They really had to wait quite a while for this movie, even though, like we mentioned last time around, if you haven't listened to our previous review of the first Back to the Future film, absolutely listen to that because these films really do build off each other. And once you see the full picture, it's really meant to be one continuous storyline. There are three separate plot events that occur, but nevertheless, they roll into each other just one after the other. So audiences uh, waited till Thanksgiving of 1989, which is crazy because the first film came out in July of 85. So they had to wait uh, about four and a half years um, just to get this movie in theaters. And neither of us were alive back then. So we didn't really understand having to wait for these movies. We just owned the Blu-ray set. We can pop them in one after another. In fact, for a fun project, I did actually edit all three films together and created a new poster art for it. I call it Back to the Future again. So if you want, you can watch the five and a half hour cut of all three films in one continuous one continuous film. I've yet to do it. I will. I'm, I don't want to commit to that. I'm just <laughs> saying, I'm just saying I would like to. And if I do watch it during this podcast series, then I'll bring it up and tell you how well it works watching these as one continuous film. But uh, the same people came back to do it as last time. Uh, Robert Zemeckis came back to direct. Uh, Bob Gale and Zemeckis came back to write as well. And Alan Silvestri also came back to do the score once again, which the score isn't too different. A lot of the same uh, musical cues were used in this as well. And it does maintain its PG rating just as the last film did. I'm going to make the case later on. This is far more suitable for kids, I would say, than the last one. uh, Yes, I would say in some ways uh, there's a portion of this movie that's pretty dark which may be able to sway to the other side, but I would say it doesn't really push anything over to the PG-13 side. I don't think at all ever. So originally Universal absolutely wanted Galen Zemeckis to do a sequel. And the two of them said, of course, but only as long as Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox, who played Doc Brown and Marty McFly respectively, as long as they, they came back, then they would come back to write a second film. They could figure out a script for it. And that should be understood right up front is they didn't really have neither of them had any real ideas or a script at all for a sequel. This 
go back and listen to the first film and you'll realize it was a very difficult production history just getting this film off the ground. So they had no idea the runaway success they had on their hands. Hence, they, they had no delusions of grandeur for creating the sequel, let alone a trilogy. So, of course, the two actors said if uh, Bob and Bob, which is they're both named Bob, if Bob and Bob are going to do it, then we're absolutely on board. Thomas Wilson, who played Biff, and Leah Thompson, who played Lorraine, said, absolutely. But our dear friend Crispin Glover, on the other hand, according to Bob Gale, Glover's agent was asking for things from Glover that was way out of line for an actor of his stature. Hence, they said, fine, we're just going to not use Crispin Glover. And it really does work that his character isn't in this movie. We're not going to get into spoilers anyway, but this movie is really not about him. He's not pivotal to the plot, but he was recast actually. So um, every time you do see George McFly on screen, not counting stock footage that they reused, he was recast with Jeffrey Weissman. Um, and honestly, if you didn't know this information now, I don't think you wouldn't know it isn't Glover. I really never knew that until... I believe when I listened to now playing's retrospective series and they talked about how Crispin Glover didn't come back, I didn't know. Yeah. Underneath all that makeup, it's kind of hard to tell if it's the original actor or not. Now, yeah, there is stock, there is additional footage that was used in the, it was shot in the first movie that they use in this one. And I do know that that costs a little bit of, uh, they got sued over it from Crispin Glover himself. Uh, of course. Um, for using, uh, something of his likeness that he did not approve of. Yeah. I forget what happened exactly with those lawsuits, but I do know that they that the filmmakers were sued for that. So, the one other person that was recast but doesn't play much of a major part in this movie that I think is one of those things that people look back on where they think um, the. Shaq movie, I believe it's called Kazam. I think everybody remembers it being called Shazam. There's yep. this whole internet conspiracy theory out there. You can look into listeners. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole here. But nevertheless, Claudia Wells, who played Jennifer in the first one, Marty's girlfriend, was supposed to reprise her role. But her mother got sick. And according to her, there was so much going on in her family at the time. She backed out of acting completely pulled out of all of her project and has never acted since. But from what I've heard, she has a really successful like closing clothing business with her husband in California. Oh, so interesting. That's good to hear. Yeah. Anyways, um, I'll say this is one of the best recasts and brain tricks in any film. She's replaced by Elizabeth Shue. And honestly, I don't even think about it now with my SSG goggles on and fully aware of it. Yeah, I realized it, but just think, Audiences weren't going to see this movie for another four years and home video was a thing, but it wasn't like today. You couldn't just stream this movie or mm -hmm. get it for two bucks. Uh, yeah, she is not. Claudia Wells was replaced by Elizabeth Shue. Now, granted, the character Jennifer is in this film for all five minutes. But once right. I see her in the opening scene, I don't bat an eyelash. And I think what really helps is they reshot the whole opening of the film. Yeah, they did have, because of the change in actresses, it'd be kind of jarring <laughs> to have the opening scene with the, with the older actress and then cut notice. after they fly off. 
and cut and have somebody completely different taking the role of Jennifer. But yeah, they do reshoot it. It's uh, they it's there really isn't much different with the older opening versus the new opening. It's just a shot for shot remake, just replacing Jennifer with uh, a different actress. Uh, but yeah, they do a pretty good job at making it, you know, one to one. There really isn't anything too big that stands out outside of, I guess, a little bit of different acting cues. But that's if you look really close. The other thing that I never knew about this film, but I think makes a lot of sense once we do our review for part three is originally Zemeckis and Gale wrote what we now know as part two and part three. Originally, that was all one script. Right. Yeah, it was supposed to be like three and a half hours or something nuts like yeah. that. Yeah, Spielberg, they brought it to Spielberg, and he said this, he, he remembers the script being about 185 pages, and with screenwriting logic, one page usually equals a minute. So yeah, that would have placed the film over three hours. No way was that going to work. So they did. They split this into part two and part three, and they also shot two and three back to back. They sh well, I should say even simultaneously. One of the things that took me by surprise was that Zemeckis doesn't like futuristic or alien type movies. He just thinks it's just a bunch of made up stuff anyway. There's really no basis of reality within them or any kind of truth. Mm -hmm. So that's he says um, filming the futuristic scenes in 2015 were the least interesting part of the film for him. Yeah, I did read. I did hear too that uh, also the futuristic scenes, which I know, and a few years ago when it was 2015, uh, people were kind of going, "Oh, look at how much there isn't in from compared to what Back to the Future Part Two thought there was going to be." I know that he said that they weren't really going for accuracy. It was yeah. uh, they were just going to they did what they did because it was it looked cool and was nice. They didn't really do it to be accurate at all. They were just having fun with it. Yeah, and even back in the 80s, this wasn't the only futuristic movie. Oh, it yeah. was Blade Runner, which we have reviewed and talked about at length. Mm -hmm. Definitely go check out the, our review for Blade Runner and its sequel. And then also Terry Gilliam's Brazil. And I know the production designer for this movie, he said those were really bleak futures. Yeah. And that's why he said, I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to be hopeful and optimistic, hence making Back to the Future a very vibrant bright um very exciting future that i think people could look forward to which makes sense um because like we mentioned earlier the second act is going to go very dark so right. having a optimistic first act coming down on the second act and then possibly returning to more optimism in the third act uh, we'll talk about it um i did find it interesting to note that spielberg said the template for a dark second act was the Empire Strikes Back, at, at um, least to him. Interesting. Yeah, I can see it. And I'm told if you look closely, they do have the flying cars from Blade Runner in this. Do film. they really? They do. Interesting. I know that uh, the self-lacing shoes mm -hmm. were a reality. They did actually make those. Nike did actually make a pair for Michael J. Fox because later on in his life, he did it. Uh, he did get Parkinson's, so it was kind of hard for him, you know, to tie his shoes. So they made them for him. And they have there's a video that was floating around on the internet around the time where you got to see those shoes in action. Now it's not as fast as it's depicted in the movie, but they look pretty much identical to what's shown here. And it's pretty cool actually to see that as a reality. Um, who knows how many years after 
this movie came out. So yes, technically self-lacing shoelaces, as we saw, is a thing. It is yes. a it is a viable product. I've seen all kinds of hoverboard concepts before that are real things. Not the kind, not the hoverboards with wheels that you lean mm -hmm. forward on, but like literally hovering above the ground. So there was a number of things that I would say they did get right or will eventually happen. But I talk about it all the time. I personally would love a flying car. I want one so bad um, because you could just fly nonstop and you could sleep. I think it would be incredible and you could watch movies yep. and games. Um, but I would love to have those shoes. Of all the things they created, those shoes are absolutely the coolest looking things. Yeah, especially when you're like me and you wear a high top Converse to work every day. Oh yeah. They would be really nice to have <laughs> when you don't have to tie your laces at all. <laughs> yeah, I did hear the way they achieved that effect was they just had um, the laces connected to wires in the ground. And so that was a fake um, cement, cement um, street and they just had people underneath just yanking them down. Yeah, I believe it. And when Marty has his self-drying coat um, they just funneled a giant tube up under his back and they just turned on the air and like turned on <laughs> a big fan. So I will say, um, the movie magic in this film is really incredible. Even if some of the CGI doesn't hold up, which it, it's like very early CGI. Like some of this is actually, um, hand drawn type animation or uh, just animated effects overlaid onto the film, they did use uh, Industrial Light Magic, which was, it's always, that's always been the premiere um, for visual effects. Yeah. And uh, I, needless to, like, not surprisingly, this film was nominated for uh, the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects at the 1990 Oscars. Right, yeah, and I mean, it deserved that nomination anyways, because the things that they do in this movie were uh, rather revolutionary for the time. Oh yeah, absolutely they were. And like I said, even watching it today, even watching it 30 years later, um, because this film just celebrated its 30th anniversary, mm -hmm. I'm still just in awe at the wonderment of what they're able to achieve without computers. Yeah. yeah I think the only thing that was actually computer animated would have been the shark. Yes. And even then they said that they were just because of the state that it, they, computer animation was in at the time, it was more of them just kind of poking fun and everything and making it uh, purposefully cheesy. Now, the film did have a much larger budget than last time. It had a $40 million budget as to opposed to a uh, $19 million budget. But did it do as well at the box office? Well, opening weekend, it grossed $27.8 as opposed to last time, which was only $11 million. And of course, it came in at number one with the top five that weekend of November 22nd being Back to the Future Part 2, Harlem Nights, The Little Mermaid, Look Who's Talking, and Steel Magnolias. So in its second week, it went up against Christmas Vacation. And um, I believe it stayed at number one. But by its third week, it dropped to number three. And for the last two weekends of the year, it was back at number one but grossed very, very low, uh, very little money. Gotcha. And Bob Gale is frustrated, at least on the special features of this. 
He cites his frustration with um, the studio not properly marketing the film because this was always billed in his mind and how it was written as not really part two and part three, but as one film. So Mm -hmm. without giving anything away, audiences felt gypped by the end of the film because it's not a complete story like the first movie is. So he thinks that word of mouth kind of diminished its box office returns. And he thinks if the studio really would have done a better job billing it then um, or marketing the third film right away, then it would have done better at the box office. But nevertheless, let's look at the numbers. So domestically, it did quite a bit worse than last time. So last time it grossed 211 million. Um, this time around, only 118 million. I mean, compared to the budget, that's still good. But yeah, not as good as last time. In the foreign markets, it surprisingly did better. Um, last time it grossed 177 million. This time it grossed 213 million for a worldwide gross. Last time it worldwide, the first film grossed 388 million. This time around, only 335 million. So uh, yeah, about 50 or so million dollars less. Yeah. So still did good. Still did oh, very good in the box office. Absolutely, it still did great at the box office, but not as good. Which is uh surprising it's a little unusual i do also think waiting four years to put out a sequel to a highly popular film will diminish its um box office returns right yeah i also heard that just getting the the sets up and running and ready to go took them two years on its own oh wow! so yeah i hear there was just a lot of work that needed to be done to get this movie into production and actually out to the audience And that's one of the things they also talked about is a lot of the things we take for granted now that are achieved through computer visual effects Mm -hmm. would have been very easy and much cheaper. Whereas back then, this was groundbreaking stuff that they were doing, uh, groundbreaking visual effects that no no one had really ever seen before or really even achieved, especially um, there's a segment where Michael J. Fox is on the screen um simultaneously three times yep and a lot of the movie is built around going over previous events and so that would require actors being on screen with each other at the same time which back then was uh they had to build a whole new motion control camera this has really never been done before um, but for back then, they uh, Zemeckis went to this guy who knew how to do this stuff, and he's like, "We're going to have to build a seriously complex motion control camera if we're going to achieve this." Mm-hmm. And Zemeckis says, "Okay, we we got to get started right away." <laughs> so no wonder it took him four years to oh, get this out. <laughs> no wonder. Plus, Zemeckis was also he had just uh, finished filming uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh yeah, that's right. So uh, how does this movie look today to most uh, audiences? Well. On IMDb, it has a 7.8, which is still, I would say, a very high score on IMDb. Oh, yeah. Very high score. Now, the uh, first one has, I think, an 8.5, 8.5, if I'm not 8. mistaken. 8.5. Which is much, much higher and definitely puts it in a solid place in the top 250. But yeah, yes. still, 7.8 is still a very solid score. This is not in the IMDb top 250. Right. Nevertheless, 7.8 is pretty good. Rotten Tomatoes are still positive, but on the far weaker 65% of critics approved of it, um, not mm. certified fresh, whereas a much larger 85% of audiences approve of the movie. Now, this is where the score drastically dips. 
It holds a 57 Metascore, which means generally mixed reviews. Yeah, I did see that, which is surprising. I mean, compared to the Rotten Tomato score, they're about the same. So audiences loved it and critics were kind of eh, about it. Um, but yeah, compared to the first one, which did great, both audiences loved it and critics loved it. It's surprising that the second one, the sequel, um, it's not as well beloved or doesn't hold as much regard as the fir- like the first one does. Yeah, because 96, a whopping 96% of critics approved of it on Rotten Tomatoes, Yeah, 94% on the audience side, and a incredibly high 87 uh, Metascore. Right, which is great numbers. Now, for CinemaScore, um, for some reason, the first film um, wasn't uh, clocked on it, but the second film, audiences gave it an A-. minus. I, I can see why. I can see because compared once again compared to the uh, Rotten Tomatoes audience score, it's about well, it's about right. I have a feeling why um, audiences and critics didn't latch onto this sequel as strongly as they did with the first film. It's incredibly rare and very hard to make your sequel better than the original. It just rarely ever happens, except as we mentioned earlier with the case of Star Wars Episode Five. Mm-hmm. Even then, some people still view episode four as a better film. But nevertheless, uh, I'm ready to talk about it if you are, Alan. Yeah, let's get into it. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen Back to the Future Part 2 and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and watch the film. And once you're done, come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Picking up exactly where the first film left off, Marty, reprised by Michael J. Fox, and his girlfriend, Jennifer, recast as Elizabeth Shue, are taken with Doc, reprised by Christopher Lloyd, back to the future, October 21st, 2015, to be exact. Which, yes, listeners, I did watch this film October 21st, 2015, with my girlfriend. In the future, Doc learns that Marty's son, played by Fox as well, will be sent to prison for 15 years, and his daughter, also played by Fox, for 20 years for trying to break her brother out. And all of this will occur because Marty will go along with a theft crime perpetrated by Griff, who is Biff's grandson, both played by Thomas Wilson. Marty, in a recreation of the town square chase, handily saves his son. But he gets the big idea after being shocked the Cubs beat Miami for the World Series And in the first film, Doc does say he wants to see who wins the next 25 World Series. Marty gets the big idea of buying a sports magazine that would ensure he could safely bet and win big on future sporting events. Doc, introducing morality back to the young Marty, tosses the magazine in the trash bin. But old Biff grabs the magazine and follows the duo. Unfortunately, the police find Jennifer unconscious thanks to Doc putting her to sleep and take her back to her house. Doc and Marty are able to see what Marty's life turns out to be, and it's pretty pathetic. Not to mention, he is talked into committing some kind of fraud by his boss, Needles, played by Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and who we'll see is his high school nemesis in Part 3. Meanwhile, Biff steals the DeLorean, goes back to the day of the Enchantment Under the Sea dance in 1955 to give his younger self the sports magazine. Returning to 2015, his consequences seem to have caused his death. But once Marty and Doc travel back to 1985, they find the past altered. 
Biff now runs Hill Valley, which I got to say, Alan, didn't this remind you a bit of It's a Wonderful Life when Potter takes over Pottersville? Yeah, yeah. There, this uh, second half does kind of harken back to It's a Wonderful Life. So now with Biff running Hill Valley, he had George McFly murdered and married Lorraine. Escaping his hellish nightmare, Marty and Doc travel back to 1955 in order to steal the magazine so Biff can never change the future. The stakes are even higher because Marty can't alter anything he set up in the first film, lest he utterly undo his existence. Through some wild antics, including saving his parents and now even himself, again in the past, Marty escapes with the sports almanac. Outside of the Lion Estates, Marty burns the book, but Doc, while in the DeLorean, is apt by lightning and accidentally transported back in time. Suddenly, a man from Western Union delivers a letter to Marty, just out of the blue, from Doc, who sent it to him 70 years in the past. Doc tells Marty he is safely living in 1885. Returning to where Marty travels back to the future in the first film, he surprises Doc by telling him he's back from the future. Doc faints there on the spot as To Be Continued rolls onto the screen as we're treated with a mini-teaser for Part 3 as credits roll. So yeah, as we mentioned earlier, uh, this opening is pretty much remade shot for shot from the original. I think there's an added line of it's your kids, Marty, something's gotta be done about your kids um, that wasn't in the original outside of uh, the actress change. But yeah, so yeah, this opening kind of once just gets us right into the future as fast as possible. It, it sets up, hey, Marty, uh, your kids, uh, something gotta be done about them, let's get out of here, let's go to the future, and then next thing we know, we're in, we're in the future. It doesn't take very long to get things rolling uh, it, it's pretty quick, actually, going from the remake of the opening to getting us right into the future and right to the uh, thick of it. And what's most interesting to me is that the potential setup at the end of the first film, and then as Alan said, we jumped to 2015 within the, I mean, the first five minutes or oh yeah, or even the first 10 minutes, we're into 2015. That's actually not going to be the plot of this movie. That's just going to be in a little bit of ways a red herring yes it does save marty's children from jail but marty's consequences of just getting this big idea like what if i get a sports almanac and go back in time and i get rich and then it backfires on him and his enemy uses that against him that's the real plot of the movie so in some ways i don't know if i i think what's probably good is maybe audiences didn't know enough that that uh 2015 future plot was not going to be the rest of the movie um i I don't think that really probably frustrated too many people i think what Mm -hmm. probably surprised audiences the most is they're going to go back to the very first film and get to see um all of the a lot of those events but from a different perspective yeah i think that's probably and that's uh, definitely where a lot of the uh special effects get to show off too is not only are they able to cut marty mcfly into three different into three different actor and actresses like we do in one scene where he's dad his daughter and his son all sitting at the table at the same time um but we're also going to go back and see the exact same scene from the original but in from a different from different angles sometimes there are different angles that were taken that they shot and they didn't put in the movie and other times they actually had, they had to recreate the scene like with the enchantment of the sea dance had to recreate 
everything to get the shot that they wanted. So yes, yeah, this is for every for all intents and purposes, this is a great looking movie, not just in terms of its style, but because of some of the special effects that they have in here. This movie looks really, really good. And as we mentioned before, groundbreaking for 1989. And I do think that overrides when we do see some of the outdated visual effects is because what they knowing what they did achieve back then really without much of computers at all mm-hmm. um really does uh, and the like you said nobody had really ever seen a movie like this where the same character is speaking with his younger self at the same time or um i just remember it being really incredible how marty is playing the guitar at the enchantment under the sea dance while he's trying to save himself and he's not even aware of himself up there, which caused a lot of confusion with my younger self. I'll talk about that here in a minute. I'm pretty (laughs) sure I'm pretty sure I understand it now, but yeah, going through all of these scenes and seeing them from a new perspective is a really cool idea. And that was Zemeckis's idea. This was actually not the original film we were going to get in the original draft of the script. Bob Gale had Marty going back to the 60s where Lorraine was a flower child protesting Vietnam and Marty would land in jail. I'm, I'm glad we that isn't what we got. Yeah, I like this idea of uh, going back to the original and showing it just in a slightly different perspective. I like that idea and how the events from the first one are not messed with really at all, um, which is you know a fear that they have going back to 1955. Um it's yeah, we would just get we do get to see things from different perspective, a different area. So yeah, definitely from not just and definitely from a uh, visual effects standpoint, this movie was once again groundbreaking. And I found myself interested in how they did some of these shots because there are some things I didn't even realize were you know they had added in later on some special effects to enhance the scene or get what they wanted. There's a couple of things I noticed. Um, usually when there's two actors um, in the same scene at the same time, there's something separating this, the frame yeah. for them to cut down and stitch together. But th- th- you wouldn't really even notice it if you weren't really paying attention. The only one that I, I really noticed would have been when Biff is talking to his young, when older Biff is talking to younger Biff and handing him the almanac. There's, it's cut down the middle where the, uh, what the support beam is for the for the windshield, and when he hands him the almanac, his hand kind of just disappears past the support beam. Um, but again, it's like you if you don't look for it, you won't notice it. Right, and I thought it was really cool because the uh, both of the Biths would they filmed each scene separately, but what they would do was. Like, for instance, the younger Biff had an earpiece in his ear mm-hmm. where he would listen to the lines he recorded of him of his older self. And then when once his older self was done talking, then he would just play off of those lines. And then his older self would cut back in while he listened in on the on his earpiece in his ear the whole time during that scene. Right. Um, I'd, I'd probably say one of the most incredible visual effects they achieved is, as I already mentioned, is the shot of all three Martys sitting at the table and Lorraine, his mom is walking around the kitchen that whole while that's occurring. And you can see how they did a little bit of it in the special features. I'm still not quite sure I understand it. 
And yeah, you can tell some things are kind of stitched together. There's some kind of composite shots that they just overlaid in the background, maybe through some kind of blue screen. I'm not quite sure with some of those, but if you really let yourself just kind of fall into the movie magic of it all, and even they do such a great job with recreating some of those scenes, just shot for shot remakes that you really don't notice it. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the standout of this movie is the special effects and how great they, not only how great they are, but how groundbreaking they are. Uh, because yeah, nowadays what we would do is we would just have a body double and then just take the face of that actor and then just Photoshop it over <laughs> for every frame. Uh, That's it. Whereas back in, <laughs> yeah, back in the eighties, you actually had to, you know, cut the frame. Uh, and even be, I mean, this is not, not a new technique cutting the frame, um, where you just, they've done this before where, uh, you just saw it in half or usually down the middle of where some kind of object is going to be. Um, that yeah. is able, the easier or an easier indicator of where to cut it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. That has been done for years, but like I said, having three act, having an actor play three characters on the same at the same time with the camera moving, by the way, yes. is very hard to do. This is what Corbin. I know you mentioned this earlier. Mm-hmm. They had to make a whole new, whole new jig to put the camera <laughs> on, so it, yeah. the movement would be perfect when they go back when they do the same movements three times to get the shot the way that they wanted it to be. If you look at the camera, it looks like something from the RoboCop universe or yeah. Terminator universe. It's really incredible what they made with it. Um, some of the things that I did want to talk about that I don't think a lot of people would would know about and I found interesting. Um, were you able to check out any of the deleted scenes? Yeah, I was. I did watch them in succession, um, yeah. the deleted scenes. There are, I think there's one or two that still are, don't have all the special effects done, so it's kind of cool to see, you know, yes. the early stages of that. But yeah, uh, yeah, I did get to see all the deleted scenes that were on the disc. I think they helped fill in a few things that I was confused about my first watch through. Um, for instance, old Terry and old Biff, when Marty goes to 2015 and the guy yeah. says... There's this guy clearly in old age makeup, and he's the guy that talks to Marty about the Cubs winning the World Series. I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah. I have no idea, and I wouldn't have known unless I watched the deleted scene. So this whole scene was to establish also the date that Biff will travel back to because old Terry comes up to Biff, and he says, I had to clean the manure out of this guy's car back in 1955. Right. And Biff says, oh, yeah, I remember that. Whereas in the theatrical cut, you don't really have that establishing of why Biff chose to go back to 1955. Doc says there must be some time paradox significance about it, but there's not. It's just Biff heard the guy talk about talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I also should note the guy who plays Terry. He also is the voice of Roger Rabbit. Uh, Okay. Which I have not seen that movie. Yeah, neither have I. I what? know that it did win an Oscar, I think. Um, Probably. It was pretty groundbreaking for incorporating cell animation into real life footage. Yes. So other than that, I've heard the movie itself is uh, very interesting. <laughs> so. Yeah. And one of the other things before I get too far is we still do this with the same actors on the screen at the same time. Most recently that I can think of with Jordan Peele's Us. And uh, they also did it with Gemini Man, but that one, they took it a step further and did um, CGI over the face, make, it, make Will Smith look younger. 
One of the other things that deleted scene cleared up for me is I never understood why when Biff comes back to 2015, he is like sweating and grunting and he's like falling over. He's collapsing. Did you ever understand what was going on? Yeah, I know. I had no idea yeah, at all. I didn't either. So in the deleted scene, Biff falls over and disappears behind the car. He just fades away. Right. Which is still super confusing. And Bob Gale was like, this still confused audiences. So in Zemeckis and Gale's, one of their early drafts of the script, they had Lorraine shoot Biff in 1996. Oh, really? Yes. So this is to represent, and this is what I said in my plot summary, was that Biff going back in time, changing the events of 1955, seems to be great for him. In 1985, but in 2015, he wouldn't exist because he would have died in 1996. Right. Hence, traveling back to 2015, it immediately just caused him to die and disappear. Right. That's a cool concept. One, they don't explore it all and drop, and it's so confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a couple of things that are okay so for one of the things they bring up um, multiple times by doc and we see this with lorraine is if you look at yourself in two different time periods like if you if when uh lorraine not lorraine but when jennifer looked at herself when she was older when she because you know she went back with them or went forward with them to 2015 they both pass out right and doc warns marty just don't look at your older self because bad things will happen right but for Biff, for whatever reason, it is totally okay to go back in time and talk to his younger self with basically no repercussions outside of changing the timeline for the better for him in some ways and comes back. And then, I mean, he dies, of course, but uh, it just seems inconsistent. Yeah, the number of times that Doc Brown brings that up and nothing of consequence comes of it I mean, yeah, it, it kind of gets annoying. I think what they're trying to do is show that Doc Brown is smart, but he doesn't necessarily have everything figured out. Because yeah. like you said, Jennifer and Jennifer see each other. They just pass out. No, no big deal, I guess. And Biff sees his younger self and that helps him get rich. I mean, yeah, nothing of consequence really comes of it. Um I think what Doc's trying to emphasize is that don't let your other self see yourself because then you will change. There'll be some ripple effect in time, um, which is something I actually really love about the third act of this movie is Marty can't do anything differently. He can't move any of the pieces around that he achieved in the first film. And when he accidentally does and he sets... Um, Biff's goons on him and they're going to beat him up after the dance then that means he would never be able to go back to the future and everything they just did would be like completely erased so that was cool but you're right Doc bringing it up so much and never mentioning it feels like um, they're just leading the audience on unnecessarily right 
And I like this idea that they do kind of mention in the first one that knowing your future is not a good thing. Um, but it that didn't brings in the whole crux of how this movie even begins because Doc comes up to Marty and says, Marty, Marty, something has to be done about your kids. Um, and so Doc wants to solve an issue in the future to help Marty's future self um, not go down this whatever road he was going to go down um, by altering the events of the future so it wouldn't happen. That seems rather foolish to me because you're still messing with time, right? And it seems like a kind of a weak plot element to bring in where, Mar where Doc, to get Marty to go to the future with him, he says, yeah, we have to change what happens to your kids. We need to change the future. That seems kind of like a weak um, plot device to me to bring the movie in and start this whole adventure and going back and forth through time um, by having to solve some issue with the kids instead of letting time play out like it's supposed to. Yeah, and it also feels completely contradictory that doc would change marty's future by just letting making sure his kids didn't go to jail but then we see marty's a complete loser and has a horrible life and so marty's like why don't i just use the time machine to change that mm -hmm. and get rich and get out of here and doc is like i didn't invent a time machine to do something like that to gamble he said i invented a time machine just just to go back in time or something or, or to go through time. Just this most bland, non-explanative type of explanation. Yeah. Yeah. It, Doc in this movie, I think, is uh, a little bit weaker than he was in the first one. And I say that because his motivations to do some of the things that he does are don't really make a lot of sense. In the first one, it's, you know, it's can't be fun. And it still is the same here. But they are taking themselves a bit more seriously this time where they're, you know, they're bringing to light this issue of, you know, knowing your future is going to be cause for disaster. Um, and how, you know, sometimes ignorance really is bliss. But then they change that at the very beginning of the movie uh, to say, OK, well, you can't know too much, but we got to change something in your future. So bad things don't happen to you later. It's it is. I think the whole setup for this movie just feels kind of weak. Although the movie is so a lot of fun to watch, it, the setup, I feel, is probably one of the weaker parts about it. I guess the only way I could really see it is Doc returning the favor. Because Maybe, in yeah. alternate 1955, Marty says in 30 years you're going to be assassinated by the Libyans, so wear a bulletproof vest or something. And Doc is, like you said, a teetotaler. He's, not, he's like, no, I don't want to do that because I really don't want to change anything. Which is funny because they clearly already changed things mm -hmm. but what can you do so doc does read the letter and he his life is saved so my only guess is that doc per just so happens to go 30 years into the future something terrible happens to marty's family he comes back right away and says i need you to stand up to griff and uh figure this out i don't know why he needs marty and jennifer to do yeah. this doc yeah. is a pretty smart guy he could have just stayed in the future gone back a day and just i don't know doc can think of something have griff fall down a manhole or something <laughs> i'm yeah. just saying i don't you're know right. and you're the setup yeah yeah and jennifer too is very much a plot device she isn't she doesn't really do too much in any of these movies 
so far, at least in these first two. That first one, she was used for, she was Mrs. Uh, exposition, where she just spilled exposition for the first 20 minutes of the movie, and that was all she did. In this yes. one, she does far less because she's there for the opening, and then Doc knocks her out, and then she wakes up later and then passes out again um, yes. because she sees herself, and then they drop her off, and that's it. <laughs> she is, she's very much a plot device in this movie, and it's unfortunate. And maybe it's because they just wrote themselves into a corner because they wanted to start off where the first one left off and yeah. then go from there. And then they already had Marty, and they already had... Uh, Marty and Doc, or Doc's already going to the future and taking Marty with them, but Jennifer's there too. Um, and they didn't really know what to do with her, so maybe that's just what happened. It just, it's, it's kind of, her character is kind of there, and I don't think she really needs to be there. No, she absolutely doesn't need to be there, and she is a complete plot contrivance and a useless diversion because Doc yeah. is like, I'm going to knock her out, seemingly for, I don't know, a completely dumb reason. Doc is just like, she's an, She's needless baggage. She's dead weight on this trip. I'm going to knock her out, leave her in, on the trash cans here in the alleyway. He did not need to knock her out. She, she could have just stood on the street corner and watched the whole thing play out. But then, yeah, okay, so I guess this basically gets into probably the largest negative of this whole movie is the way all of these plot contrivances make the plot flow. Yeah, it's all a series of unfortunate events where as the first one was a very clean setup of a youth accidentally going back in time to save his life. And it just so happens that may cause him to never be born. And it all takes place in 55 and he's always trying to get his parents back together and then it all works out. Mm -hmm. Whereas this one is it's just one mishap after another. And it could be said as as you've brought up that if doc would have just let the future play out and or would have stopped griff himself in some better way then none of this would have happened the whole movie wouldn't have happened so right the whole movie's doc's fault yeah pretty much I, I, that's why i say doc i feel is a weaker character here that he was in the first one because yeah everything that happens in this movie spawns from him taking marty into the future yeah well he takes marty into the future just to rectify a situation, which causes a bigger problem. He leaves Jennifer on his trash cans, unconscious, which causes them to have to needlessly go and rescue her from their house, just so he can see Marty in the future. And then Biff is hanging around town square and overhears about the almanac and comes out of the back door and wahaha, steals it, goes back to 55, and then once they go back to 85... Things are changed and they just leave Jennifer on her porch, which how do they even know that's her porch? Clearly, Marty doesn't live in the same house. I so why do why do they assume she lives in the same house? I don't know. I mean, OK, to be fair, at the time, I'm sure Marty knew where she lived um, and then just, I guess, hadn't noticed the change in 1985 quite then. <laughs> I guess he didn't notice her dad's smashed up car and all yeah. the other trash lying around. But. Yeah, it's always just kind of the series of unfortunate events that they have to continually rectify. But this leads me into my biggest statement about the film is this is an 80s cartoon brought to life. Yeah, this movie is very over the top. And especially, I think it's more, most evident, at least the best example of it is when you go into the future and you meet Griff. Holy crap. He's <laughs> way over the top. He's a cartoon. I mean, he's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. But he's so over the top. Oh, yeah, since when are you the physical type? 
<laughs> and even his goons, his goons are hilarious too because there's a line that I remember. Um, <laughs> Mark McFly, you bojo. Those <laughs> boards don't work on water unless you've got power. <laughs> I mean, oh, don't yeah. get me wrong. They're hilarious lines. I love them, but they are very much over the top. They're very cartoony. Well, it's a, yeah, this is a complete cartoon. And if you want to talk about Doc causing more trouble and more plot contrivances just so we can have a third film is for no dang reason. They grab the almanac. They have to fly to the edge of town. Okay. Back to the lion estates. Who knows why? I guess they had the bucket and the lighter fluid (laughs) waiting for them there. (laughs) Doc dumps Marty out of the car and doc is hovering around in the delorean during a lightning storm in the air for no reason except for him to be struck by lightning to set up the third film right yeah it's that's that's of all the things alan i will say that is the one that bugs me the most (laughs) no i agree with you yeah there i mean it's clear that doc with the newest renovations he made to the delorean that really just takes trash to get enough power to go back in time or go through time <laughs> he very easily could have landed and have mitigated this entire issue and it can completely eliminated the third film from ever happening um yeah it is again there are a lot of plot contrivances in this movie one thing just kind of leads to another and another and points the whole time doc and marty are just playing cleanup after doc's mistake of bringing marty into the future and then biff going back to the past and causing this whole thing to start happening. It's, it feels like they're just playing the whole movie. They're just playing cleanup from the things they did. And it, it makes it feel, it makes it the movie a lot weaker than the first one because the first one's just a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's a dumb movie, but it has such an interesting idea and an interesting way of going about it. It has such great pacing that it makes you forget that how, you know, how kind of silly that movie actually is. But the movie knows that and does a really good job at masking that. This way, I think, does tries to do too much and because it wants to do so many different things like it's go to the future you can go back to the past and relive what happened in the first movie that i think it has a trouble it has trouble maintaining um what made the first one so memorable and so much fun oh yeah i agree it does try to do way too much and the script is incredibly convoluted yeah I think the film is easy enough to follow due to its very kind of simplistic cartoon nature of really exp- of having the MacGuffin be a sports almanac being the center of just earth shattering alterations in mm-hmm. the time continuum. I think it's easy enough to follow, but nevertheless, it is this really big whirlwind adventure of going 30 years into the future. And then 30 years into the past, another 30 years into the past, and then getting stuck in the past, and then eventually having to go 100 years, or I guess 70 years or something, into the past. So it was, it made writing the plot summary a little tricky, I will say, is trying to keep track of everything. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's kind of one of my other things, too. And you, I mean, you just kind of mentioned this it's unneedlessly convoluted. There are a lot of things this movie has to keep in line and keep juggling. And that kind of leads into its pacing, which, as I mentioned in the last podcast, has great pacing for the first movie. I can't say the same for this one because the pacing is really kind of weird because for the first half of the movie, they're going back and forth in time until about the sports almanac back in 1955. Then they really slow it down 
to build up suspense because Marnie's got to get the sports almanac back from Biff. And it takes a long time to build up the suspense and then actually get it back and then lose it, then get it back again. It makes the pacing for the whole movie just feel kind of wonky. Yeah, when you look at it from a general sense, as you said, the pacing is kind of feels wonky and all over the place. And if you really do kind of dissect the machinations of why certain events occur, it's kind of frustrating how kind of, I guess, stupid the whole thing is. I guess my biggest frustration is this all centers around a sports almanac and Biff going back in time so he can get rich and Marty wanted to get rich and Doc wouldn't let him. That just seems really dumb to me. I just mm-hmm. know they're, I know they're Bob and Gail and Zemeckis are better writers than this. And I still think this film is an absolute blast and oh yeah, it's a huge adventure. It's so over the top and fun, but nevertheless, I guess I feel a little bit gypped in a way that we did have this more of a smarter take and more of an interesting take of like, what would it be like to meet your parents? And what if you do meet your parents and your mom falls in love with you? And then you, and then that's going to cause you to never be born. Whereas this mm-hmm. is just like, we have, we spend forever playing cat and mouse and back and forth trying to get the sports almanac back. Yeah. That's what made the first one so great is how some plistic it was and its story but the way that they execute that i think is what makes the movie so memorable uh this one the plot's convoluted there's a lot of things going on there's so many things that they have to jump through to make this adventure you know as fun as it's supposed to be and it's still a very fun adventure i would still it's still a very fun movie i do still enjoy this movie but i feel that the plot is a it takes a significant hit um, when we move on to the second one and maybe that's because they wanted the studio says split it into two so the editing took a hit to make this movie feel like a more put together movie than if it was one long continuous three hour adventure. I don't know. Um, maybe that maybe that would have been fixed had the studio allowed them to make one whole big adventure. It's hard to say. Um, but the plot of this movie, I think, is its biggest weakness because of how things play out and how it is executed versus the original, which was great in that in that way i did notice that the third film is much much higher critically received than this film actually oh really i didn't notice that it is um i one of the other things that does cement this film as a cartoon is marty being called a chicken ah yes and to their credit gail said in the commentary that if they knew they were ever going to make a sequel they would have included this character flaw in the first film Make of that what you will. <laughs> I think that I've heard that has frustrated a lot of people because there were there were ample opportunities for Marty to be called a chicken in the first film, and he never was. And then all of a sudden, Marty gets called a chicken at least like four times. And he can't back down from that. He kind of has a temperament about it. There's no setup as to why that matters to him. It's not like a character flaw of his dad's or anything. It's just out of the blue. Once again, it's a cartoon. I mean, yeah. this yep. movie, and, and especially watching it now, I'm like, this is a kid's movie. Like, for Pete's sake, it's super colorful. It's super over the top and crazy. Nobody really gets hurt. I will say the nineteen alternate 1985 is fairly disturbing with 
kind of some domestic issues yeah. with Lorraine and Lorraine's uh, breast implants did disturb me when I watched this when I was younger. Yeah, did they look, did that look fake to you? Did that look like a suit that she was wearing? Because it did to me. Well, now that I'm older, it looked fake. But when I was younger, I didn't know it. Oh, no, yeah, no I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with so, you. Yeah, the, the Ultra 1985 scared me when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah, it did. So, uh, I mean, it's PG, parental guidance. But nevertheless, this is so, I mean, so on the level of more of a family-oriented kids yeah. movie, which is fine that they're going that route. I guess I would prefer that as opposed to making some mind-blowing you know, interstellar type thing. Yeah. I, I think they just picked up the best elements of making this a fun, lighthearted movie. And they wanted to do something really crazy with it by going into the future instead of just the past. But what if you had to go back to that past to save it again? And thankfully with the third film, they do something completely different from what I remember. Right. Yeah. And I was wondering if there would maybe be a way to maybe tighten up this plot. Cause I was thinking after I finished it, it was like, okay, well, what if they did this? What if uh, the second movie ended when they went back to the alternate 1985 and it's all a mess, right? Everything is the way that they're supposed to be. Biff has taken over Hill Valley and it's all, it's all trashed. What if the second movie ended there and then the third movie picked up where that movie left off, or the first, second one left off and instead of going back to 1980, instead of going back to 1885 and the third one, they just had to go back to 1955 and s- stop the problem where it began from the second movie, still back the sports almanac, so that plot device, whether that plot would never happen. I was wondering if that would maybe make the pacing of both these movies a bit more tighter um, when it comes to telling its story. I don't know. Maybe that would have dragged out a couple of elements, but I was wondering if that would maybe have made the story a little bit easier to follow. I think it's possible, very possible, actually, that it would have made the pacing a lot tighter. I think it would have given us more of an opportunity to make the future scenes count more and feel like there were something. Yeah. Because they're resolved within the first half of the first act. Because the second half of the first act is trying to save Jennifer from their house, which feels completely inconsequential as well. Right. And just gives Biff an opportunity to steal the DeLorean because they're not watching it for that, I don't know, three minutes, however long it takes them. I think you're right. It would clean up the pacing, and that would be a great cliffhanger as well. And it would give us a little bit more time in alternate 1985, and they could probably... Um, play off of what audiences knew more in 1985 when when audiences had just experienced that a few years earlier. And then probably having the third act of that film coming full circle mm-hmm. with the events of the very first film. I think that would be really interesting. But I think you're right. There is that potential pitfall of maybe tightening the pace, but then at the same time dragging things out that are right. needless. So. I don't know. I will say that I love the ending of this film. I know audiences felt gypped at the time because they weren't used to cliffhanger endings in films because uh, serials would run in movie theaters, but those were usually for kids. And those always had cliffhangers. You know, the, the car's brakes have been cut. It's going off of the cliff. What will happen next time? Um, but movies usually were a fully contained narrative Whereas this really isn't, but looking at it today, I love it despite um, 
the unfinished nature. I mostly love it because it creates a really great conflict for our central character, Marty. He is now stranded in um, ni- what 1955. Yeah, yeah. His, right? the, reali- the problem that was going to happen in the first one has now become a reality. Yes, yes, exactly. And he can't hitch a ride with himself back to 1985, which would have been interesting. He just misses it. And Doc thinks they have won. But I do love where it picks picks back up and we see Marty coming around the corner. And yep. Doc has this like heart attack almost. And he's like, I just sent you back to the future. And he says, Doc, I'm back. I'm back from the future. And just would have blown Doc's mind. I do love that. And I love even more that they've done something I've never, ever seen before is they attach the teaser trailer to the third film. Yeah. At the I, end of the second film. That Mind is... Blown. I've never seen that either, uh, <laughs> taking the teaser. I've seen it like in anime at the very, very end of the credits. Oh, sure, they'll sure. introduce the next episode, right? Yeah. But I've never seen it like this in a film where they actually introduce the next movie, like a teaser for it after, before even the rolling credits start happening. Yes. Um, never seen that before. No, no. And that's incredible. That is, inc- and they could, and they could do that because they were shooting the film simultaneously. Right. So they're completely capable of that. I can't even believe they got the go ahead from Warner Brothers to, release footage at the end of the second film um i don't know i guess the only other sense of excitement i could even relate to that in recent memory is when we thought cloverfield 3 was going to come out later in the year and then surprise we hadn't seen any footage or stills from it we knew nothing about it but the first trailer dropped during the super bowl and then it's like Oh, and the movie is going live on Netflix in a couple hours. Oh, yeah, that's right. I love those boss type moves where it's just like, oh, yeah, you knew the new um, Christopher Nolan film you're excited for. Yeah, it comes out tomorrow. Yeah. You're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Change my whole plans. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Great. Got to call in sick. The only thing close we had to this now would have been maybe with the Marvel movies. They always have like that teaser at the end of the movie, uh-huh. but that usually doesn't ever like make it into the actual film. Sometimes it does. It's just to introduce, you know, the next movie that's going to happen or just a tag at the end of the film uh, yeah. just for fun, you know. But that's probably the closest thing we have nowadays is, you know, after credit scenes that are after a lot of movies nowadays. And you're absolutely right to bring that up. I think this is probably where that was first introduced. Just the kind of the concept of that is teasing the next movie, mm-hmm. you know, and um, clearly this is actual footage from the next movie, whereas Marvel usually never is. But yeah, that teaser right there. I'm just glad they didn't make us wait to the very end of the credits. That's true. Yeah. So, <laughs> and yeah. audiences wouldn't have. Everybody would have missed it. They knew they couldn't do that. Only Marvel has trained us to wait Right. And hold our, our bladders until they explode. But it's a different story. Um, one of the other things I found interesting is Marty's brothers and sisters, we see how their life is affected between the um, changes in the last film. Right. Um, but we don't see that in this movie. Unless you watch the deleted scene. Marty's older brother, Dave, is in the alternate 1985. And he's just a complete bum. He's a, a you know homeless guy. But... I guess they felt like they couldn't use this scene because everybody would question where's Marty's sister and they wanted her to be a hooker, but she was actually pregnant at the time of filming. So Ah. clearly they couldn't have her be in the movie. So they felt it was off balance. So 
I recommend checking out that scene to so you could see Marty's brother and not completely forget he's not an only child. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering that too on this watching. I was like, yeah, you know, they don't really, you know, talk about the family too much. Like, you know, what happened to brother and sister. Um, yeah, that deleted scene. I was like, okay, well, there's Dave. Where's the sister? And now I understand the sister was pregnant at the time. That makes sense. Well, and I think it also works really well how they use the George McFly character mm. because in 2015 he's upside down the whole time anyway don't even think about it and the impersonation is good enough and then alternate 1985 he's been murdered of right. course Biff would murder him that makes complete sense right and then when we where do we land oh, okay so in the recreation of the scenes it's either stock footage of him or it's always shot from far enough away usually out of focus that it's and just they use the, a body um, double. <laughs> and they use a body double. So you don't even think about it. Yeah. So the character of George McFly is not technically written out of this movie, but I think the way he is used works perfectly fine. Yeah. No, the way that they use him, like, cause in the first one, he's like, you can't have back to the future without George McFly. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, in this one, while he is still important to the plot, it's, they're not going to completely write him out. I know they had thought about that at one point, but then they decided not to do it um, because he is still very important. And my, it's also a good way to show like, you know, where we're at compared to the first movie. So yeah, they don't completely write him out. Although they do recast him and they use some stock footage, but they don't write him out. Another thing is if you're an eagle-eyed viewer, you will notice Elijah Wood who plays Frodo. That's in right. Lord of the Rings. That's He's right. the little boy in the arcade. That's right. I forgot about this fact. Um, also, of course, Billy Zane comes back as the henchman match. He's in the first one. He's much more famous now. Um, but yeah, young Billy Zane in his first role. One of the things that also helped me feel better about going into the next movie is there are a ton of setups for the third film yes. in this movie, which I never really recognized. And I've only seen the third film twice maybe but i always felt like that stuff was just out of the blue it just usually came out of nowhere but i guess that's not true so we first see marty's great with a gun in the cafe 80s arcade machine right okay that's gonna come back up marty's mom speaks about a rolls royce incident that happened to marty right after the events of the first film we've never seen that occur and we won't see that towards the end of part three, I believe. Mm -hmm. But it does involve his boss, Needles. We will talk about my possible issues with that in our third review. Buford Tannen, Biff's ancestor, is seen in his life documentary outside the hotel. Right. The Old West. Also, a fistful of dollars, the bullet vest, that will foreshadow a similar event in part three. Right. Marty throwing Biff's match tray at his head foreshadows his pie throwing scene in part three and surprise doc wears a shirt with cowboys horses and trains on it throughout the uh film uh yeah the, and then not just this calling back to the second to the third movie or what would happen in the third movie but this movie these series in general has a lot of setups and payoffs to it. Yeah. Like they'll set something up in secret, but you won't, and they may even pay it off in secret, but you maybe not even know it unless you pay really close attention to it. That's just mm -hmm. like, I think that happens throughout this entire series. They'll set something up in the first movie. They may not pay it off to the third one um, just by accident. 
Oh, yeah. And that's really cool to see those setups and payoffs occur and they don't drop them altogether. Yeah. Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Back to the Future Part 2? Back to the Future Part 2, when I was a kid, I thought this one was definitely my favorite at first. And and for a kid of my age, I would I wouldn't expect much more because this movie does go to does go to a lot more places than it does in the first movie. Um, however, because of what it does, I feel that its execution is rather weak. Because in the first movie, I I gave good praise to the first one for how not only how great pacing it has, but because of its execution and how well everything, how much personality the movie had, it felt like a great adventure to go on. And I want to go on more and more. And that's why it's kind of become, it's hit me such in such a place. It's become very nostalgic for me. This one is not the case. Uh, This one, not as nostalgic as the first one. Uh, And that's because I feel like the adventure that we go on here isn't nearly as, I guess, well put together story-wise than the than its original there are a lot of things that are pretty convenient there are a lot of things that uh i feel are rather weak doc's character again is one of those it's a good example of this um but at the end of the day it's still a lot of fun to watch even though there is not nearly as good as the first one it is pretty cool to see things happen that happen in the first one play out in a separate as part in the same way but different a different view it's really interesting to see some of the ideas that they have here and this movie production design and visual effects looks freaking great but its story i think is what kills it for me is that its story unlike the first one which was a lot of fun and really really witty and as i said such a personality i don't feel the same way here it's rather weak but i would still recommend it i'm gonna stick with a seven out of ten for me uh very solid recommend Back to the Future Part 2 is a wild ride rapidly jumping between a colorful future, a Pottersville past, and a different look back in 1955. Once you realize this film is a fine 80s cartoon brought to live action, and with much more thought involved, you'll have a really fun time. No, this sequel isn't as good as the original, but thankfully it's its own thing. I highly enjoy the zany plotline, costume design, and world building. The chicken retcon is annoyingly needless while lending itself to the cartoonist nature. Also, as Alan and I discussed, there are certain plot setups that just feel weak. The whole series of unfortunate events and the sports almanac being at the crux of it all can get a little odd and frustrating at times. And also certain setups for part three also act as retcons for part one, which feel more so shoehorned in to fit the third film than as natural nods to what's to come. Looking back just over 30 years later, I greatly appreciate the magical visual effects that took so much dedication to bring this world to life. Although Back to the Future Part 2 doesn't usually get the respect it deserves today, I'm giving it eight stars out of 10 with a high recommend. I'm going to say I'm kind of excited for next week because I haven't seen the third film. I think I've actually only seen it once. And that was when I watched it with my dad all those years ago. I don't think I've seen it again. I can't recall a time where I've actually seen it again. So I'm really curious to see what my thoughts are going to be going back to it. I really am too, especially once I saw the Rotten Tomatoes score was significantly higher than the second movie. Mm -hmm. And as you can tell, I like the second movie, 
I gotta be honest. I remember not really being very keen on the third movie, but I have only seen it. I have only really sat down and watched it all the way through once to my recollection. And that was about four years ago after I watched um, this film in 2015 when it took place. I said, you know what, we should, I've got the Blu-ray trilogy, which I've not really cracked open. I said, let's go ahead and watch the third film. And we did. And I remember my thoughts not being very strong on it, but Mm -hmm. I don't know, coming to the series from this perspective, like Alan said, I'm definitely excited to review the third film and see what it is. I'm kind of expecting some still fun cartoon elements to be involved. I think that's just kind of where the series has come to live. Yeah. Um, with the second one kind of kind of placing it there and knowing that the second and third film are technically one film, then I don't really have much of a reason to believe otherwise. But I'm still very excited. And the teaser footage that they showed uh, did get me excited. I was a little worried they were showing too much of certain scenes Yeah. Um, that I definitely could have done without. But I think they did that on purpose because there are a lot of plot threads left dangling at the end of part two um, that they're trying to show you. Don't worry. We'll have a resolution to all of them. They probably should have just not done that, mm-hmm. but yeah, well, we'll see. I'm still very excited to see the conclusion to this trilogy. Yeah. I'm withholding too much judgment. I do remember not having as much, uh, of a positive reaction like the first or second movie to this one but that was years ago so we'll see how uh, my thoughts have changed um, I'm actually really curious to see if I think this is better the same or worse than the second one I'm curious I'm curious and don't hold hold me to it Alan I will tell you the first time I tried to watch this movie and it didn't happen oh yeah Hold me to that story. I will save that story for next time, listeners. So, Alan, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with Back to the Future Part 3. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual 
and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.